Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this event at the LSE this evening. Um, my name is Bradley Franks, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Social Psychology. Um, this lecture is part of a series of lectures which are designed to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the inauguration of the Department of Social Psychology at the LSE. Each of these lectures is focused on the topic of psychology as a social science. Now, it's an enormous pleasure and a privilege, I think, to welcome today Professor Richard Nisbet. Richard Nisbet is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he's also the co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program. And over a very long and very distinguished career, Dick Nisbet has received many, many awards for his major contributions to social psychology. He's been at the forefront of many developments in social psychology that I've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, so much so that these insights now seem like common sense to us in the discipline. Every time we think about a topic, we think through the lens that Dick Nisbet has established. The insights range from major contributions to how we understand people's explanation of everyday events to debates about methodology concerning how reliable is verbal data in giving an indication of people's mental states, all the way to the more complex questions of what are the relationships between mind and culture. And it's this last topic that Dick's going to focus on today. Um, his account of the similarities and differences in ways of thinking between people across different cultures, which he wrote up in his wonderful book, The Geography of Thought, in 2003, has now become a major cornerstone in the field. It's one which I certainly would never be without, and none of my students would be without either. And the idea that culture plays a major role in influencing our thinking also has some important practical implications. Dick has traced some of these in his book entitled intelligence and how to get it, why schools and cultures count. What's critical in this book is that he's pitting genetic explanations against cultural explanations and finding that probably cultural explanations win. And given that culture is a major influence on the way that we think, it's a small step to then to think that maybe the kinds of cultural tools we have, the kinds of environmental tools we have, may also influence and change the way that we think. So technologies like computers, um, uh, disciplines like mathematics and logic, make a difference to the way that we think. And it's that extra step that Dick has taken in his most recent book, which is called uh, Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. So today Dick is going to expand on these issues and he's going to raise other questions such as, are humans getting smarter? Are some groups smarter than others? Are some groups getting smarter faster than others? And perhaps most importantly, in the context of those kinds of questions, he's going to ask the further question, what are the possibilities for increasing the rate of growth of human intelligence? For Twitter users, the hashtag for today's lecture is LSE Mindware. Could I ask you all please to turn off your telephones so we don't disrupt today's um, presentation? Well, at least put them on silent anyway. Um, 
Also note that today's um, presentation will be recorded, and we hope that there will be a podcast available in short time. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to ask questions of Professor Nisbet. There will also be a book sale in the auditorium, and after that, you can bring your books through, and Dick will sign them on the stage here. So, with that said, please would you welcome me in joining Professor Dick Nisbet to give his lecture on culture and intelligence. Well, thank you. Can, can you hear me? If anyone having trouble hearing me, just raise your hand. But of course, if you didn't hear me, you're not going to know what I ask you to do. Uh, so I'm delighted to be asked to speak at the London School of Economics, mostly because it's the London School of Economics, but also because I'm considering another career in economics. I mean, my work on intelligence pushes me more and more uh, toward uh, economics as a field that will help me to understand things. Uh, and also, of course, because it's London. <laughs> uh, so um, let me uh, start by, there we go. Okay, there's the title. And I'm going to give you an IQ test designed for a 19th century Plains Indian of the Sioux or Dakota kind. See how you do. What's the best way to ensure that you can always make a fire in short order? I think we can agree a Sioux Indian would have to know that. In what circumstances is it most effective to kill a large number of buffalo by starting a prairie fire? And in what circumstances is it best to herd them off a cliff? When making arrows in the spring, is it best to use ash tree saplings or locust tree branches? And what are the most important attributes in the leader of a raiding party if the main purpose of the raid is to obtain horses or if the main purpose is to drive another tribe out of your territory? I'm guessing you don't feel like you did very well on this test. Um, I was actually able to score at the imbecile level, but that's only because I made up the test. Um, okay, so, but that's not fair. Let's do it with some something Western culture. Uh, let's look at the Army IQ test. Uh, what's the top speed achieved by a locomotive? 40, 60, or 80? Uh, what's the best tool to use to fix a broken telegraph key? And which of the following animals can be driven to market by men on horseback? Now, you said, wait a minute. I didn't, probably didn't do very well on that one either. Well, that's because that's the 1915 U.S. Army uh, IQ test. Uh, and... Uh, I don't actually know the answer to the first two questions. I do, however, know a very interesting answer to the last question. You can drive hogs to market. You can drive cows. And I've just found out you can drive turkeys to market. Or you could back when they were doing that. Um, you can't drive buffalo. Buffalo are impossible. They, just, they don't behave. Um, okay, so, well, but let's stop fooling around. Let's, let's, uh, I should give you a culture-free uh, IQ test. Uh, and we have one. Uh, the, um, it's called Culture Free. It's the Raven Progressive Matrices. And we know that a person's total score provides an index of his intelligence and intellectual capacity, whatever his nationality or education. Now, we've all seen circles and squares and diamonds, uh, so uh, there should be no problem. What you're trying to do here is to figure out what are the transformations uh, that are used across the top row. How are those the same as the transformations on the second row? And using your understanding of what the transformations are, what's the answer? 
So uh, in case uh, you had any difficulty with that, I'll tell you that the answer is number eight, uh, the last one. Um, So there is a problem with the claim of culture-free aspect to this because since 1950, scores in the United States and in Britain on the Ravens IQ test have gone up 28 points. Someone who scored 130 on the Raven intelligence test, that's two standard deviations above the mean, would get a a very mediocre score today. That's because the culture has changed so profoundly that people can do these kinds of things much better than they could do at that time. More interest, so the Raven is not a culture-free test. It's drenched in culture. It's all about culture. Uh, More interesting than the changes that have happened in the Ravens, because that's just one quirky IQ test, is what's happened to uh, full-scale IQ tests of the kind that you get on Stanford Binet, uh, and that's gone up by uh, 17 points uh, in uh, the period 1950 to about uh, 2010. Uh, Again, that, to tell you how enormous that is. Someone who had an IQ of 100 uh, would be expected to finish high school and perhaps have a little bit of college. Uh, uh, Someone with an IQ of 117 would be uh, expected surely to go to university uh, and would be a candidate uh, for graduate education. Now, have people really gotten that much more intelligent? I don't actually know how to answer that question. I do know that IQ test scores are not identical to what I would call intelligence. They certainly are associated with it. But I'll tell you something about the subtests of IQ tests. They include um, um, comprehension, it's called. That's not paragraph comprehension. It's comprehension of the way the world works. So you can ask kids, why do doctors go back and get more education? A kid who can answer that question is smarter than a kid who can't answer that question think you would agree. Or you can ask a child, uh, how are revenge and forgiveness alike? Uh, A child who can answer that question, I think you'd agree, is smarter than one who can't. Um, And uh, it's it's been um, on on the other tests here on vocabulary, these are for children, so they're not, uh, uh, they don't show much gain. I've been writing textbooks, and I'll tell you that textbook editors keep trying to make you push the level of vocabulary down ever further. In the U.S., the vocabulary level in uh, high school textbooks is two years lower than it was 30 years ago. But for adults, it's quite different. Uh, In both the U.S. and uh, uh, Britain, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, Uh, the average person had a few years of grammar school. That was pretty much it. Now, 40% of people in Britain and the U.S. have tertiary degrees. They have vocabularies uh, that are a standard deviation higher than they were 50 or 60 years ago, and that's huge because the more vocabulary you have, the more concepts you have, the more concepts you have, uh, the better you can reason. Uh, So uh, why... Did the culture change in this way? Why did IQ go up? Um, there are lots of answers to that, but 
Ultimately, I think the answer is that the industri Industrial Revolution changed everything. And by that, I mean everything. Uh, wealth in the West uh, hardly increased at all for the 2,000 years prior to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, life expectancy uh, has more than doubled since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So we're healthier, we're wealthier, are we wiser? Uh, I actually will defend that proposition if asked later, but I certainly know uh, that, we're, uh, that we're smarter. Uh, and, and in ways that it's hard for us to imagine because we think of, we think, we are so inclined to think that intelligence is just something you have. Uh, but uh, in 1760, at the beginning of the uh, uh, industrial age, uh, the typical person on the street or in the field uh, would, if you had virtually no ability to reason abstractly, no recognition of how to categorize things and how to make inductions about the world by virtue of category membership of some object or animal or whatever, uh, very little ability to apply logic to anything other than just the routines of everyday life, uh, very little capacity to uh, engage in hypothetical reasoning. So if you ask such a person, and, and how do we know what they would have answered? Because we know what happens with totally unschooled people today when you ask them the following kinds of questions. If you were to say um, to someone, uh, I have a cousin who lives in North America. And uh, in North America, all the bears are brown. Uh, yesterday, I got a letter from across the ocean from my, from my relative in North America. And he said he saw a bear. What color do you suppose the bear was? And the answer would probably be, how should I know? Ask your friend who saw the bear. Uh, so, um, or you might say, uh, can you tell me how uh, a fish and a bird are alike? And the person would be like, a fish and a bird aren't alike. A fish can swim, uh, but it can't fly. A bird can fly, but it can't swim. A bird can eat a fish, but a fish can't eat a bird. And that would be your answer to that question. Or if you were to ask, how, would you, how do you think you would feel about that issue if you were French? <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'm not French. I couldn't be French. Don't ask ridiculous questions. Hypothetical reasoning would have been beyond them. So the three R's gave them what was absolutely essential for the Industrial Revolution, read, the ability to read and write and do some arithmetic. But free with all of that came these uh, aspects of intelligence having to do with abstraction, logic, and so on. Uh, but we don't all have the same culture here in Britain or in the U.S., there are differences uh, among families and what goes on in the way of teaching things that are valuable to the culture. Uh, one of the ways of studying this is by something called the home scale, which is home observation and measurement, something or other. You go into people's homes uh, and you see how, what's, what's going on in that home that's relevant to intellectual functioning. How many books are there? Uh, you find out whether the child is ever taken to museums or taken on outings where the person might learn something. You look at what happens uh, in the way of language in the home. And what you'll find is that in middle-class homes, 
There's many, many differences along all these lines. But to me, the most interesting one is that what happens in uh, working class homes is basically the communication of the child is do this, don't do that. Uh, in middle class homes, the uh, language is like a, a tennis game. Uh, the parent says something to the child, the child says something back or asks the question, and you back and forth, and there's, there's some genuine intellectual work that goes on in the context of conversation. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the IQ of children in higher SES homes is higher than that in lower SES homes. Uh, and uh, it's not simply because of genetics. In fact, it's probably not much to do with genetics at all because we have a natural experiment of placing kids uh, in homes uh, which are uh, low socioeconomic status versus middle or upper middle uh, socioeconomic status. That's worth, that difference, that class difference is worth 12 to 15 points in IQ. So it's a huge difference what's going on in the home that will uh, affect uh, uh, people's IQ. So is IQ just culture? Well, no. Uh, there are very substantial individual differences within a culture, uh, and uh, we know that those individual differences are in part due to genetics. We know that because identical twins are more similar in IQ uh, than fraternal twins, and fraternal twins are more similar in IQ than unrelated kids living in the same household. So how much of the difference among people in a population is due to genetics? And by the way, that's the way to state that instead of the way most people, probably even most people in this room, I'm afraid, would be inclined to think about the heritability of intelligence. It's how much of your intelligence is genes and how much is environment, which is about as reasonable as saying how much of the area of a rectangle is due to the height and how much to the width. Uh, heritability applies only to populations. It tells you the percent of variation in some characteristic in a population that is owing to genes. So how much uh, in our society, uh, how much of the difference among individuals uh, is due to genetics? Well, it turns out that's dependent on culture. Uh, for people of upper middle class, the heritability of IQ is about 0.7. It's really huge. For people who are lower class, the, the heritability is less than 0.2. There is almost no contribution of genetics to the intelligence of people of lower SES. Now, why might you have this situation? Well, we don't exactly know, but here's what I strongly believe, that upper-middle-class families don't differ much from one another. I mean, Lawyer Smith's family and Dr. Jones's family are really pretty much the same with respect to socialization for intelligence. Uh, and where environments differ little, it's genetics that's going to be determining the outcome primarily. Heritability is very low for lower SES people because the range of uh, socialization in the home is from uh, something, a situation that's chaotic and disruptive in every respect to uh, something that is as good as you would ever find in an upper middle class household. And when you have huge environmental variation, it's the environment that's driving the bus, uh, not genes. Uh, so, one very interesting 
aspect of this. Another way to put that point about the lower SES people, it's not, a, it's not exactly a different idea. Well, it is a bit of a different idea, but it, it's not in any way in conflict with the one I just gave. And that is, if, a, if an environment is sufficiently poor uh, for the person, the person doesn't, is not allowed to reach their genetic potential. This implies a very optimistic answer to the question of to what degree could society step in uh, to uh, make sure that people reach their genetic potential? Uh, and uh, the answer is a lot. Uh, the most obvious one, uh, the biggest one, is school. Uh, you can't be smart without school. School makes everybody smarter. School is a remarkably, a more remarkably leveling influence on intelligence, uh, primarily by leveling everybody up to a, a particular area. There's still plenty of individual differences, but there are huge effects of school on lower SES kids that you don't find for upper middle class kids. Uh, if you look at what happens to kids' IQs and academic achievement over the summer, uh, it drops. Uh, but the degree of drop is totally dependent on social class. It drops a lot for the bottom fifth SES, and it actually increases for the top fifth. In fact, most of the difference in academic achievement that we find in our society is due to the summer, where the kids in upper middle class families are continuing to have intellectually stimulating activities of the kind that are going to make them smarter, and the lower SES kids uh, are not getting as much. And most of the difference in academic achievement is over the summer uh, that it's been caused. Well, are there cultures other than socioeconomic status uh, that influence IQ? We have a huge amount of data on the question in the U.S. for blacks versus whites. Of course, we're talking there mostly about Western uh, African genes uh, and versus Western European genes. Up until around 30 years ago, the black-white difference in IQ was 15 points. Uh, the bell curve by Hernstein and Murray said, well, could we explain this by social class? I mean, it's certainly true that blacks are held down in social class by discrimination. Well, no, it doesn't explain it because at every level of social class, you find that uh, whites have higher IQs than blacks. Uh, and therefore, a substantial fraction of the difference in IQ between blacks and whites uh, is genetic. And that's an ironclad argument uh, if that's the only way you could, the only environmental factor that could account for the difference, namely social class, but it isn't the only environmental factor. There are cultural differences. Uh, if you look at what goes on in homes, at every level of social class, there's a different kind of socialization that's going on in black homes and in white homes on average. Uh, a middle-class income uh, doesn't make a black the same uh, middle-class in the same way that it makes a white middle-class uh, person. Uh, middle-class, so-called middle-class blacks, have one-sixth the wealth of, uh, uh, of, of white middle-class, um, and uh, they have um, probably only been in the middle class, at least when most of the studies were done. People don't do this research anymore. Uh, back when the research was being done, uh, you, if you looked at uh, 
the difference uh, between uh, black and white, uh, middle class, uh, you would find that uh, uh, the middle class blacks had probably been middle class only for a generation at most, whereas many middle class whites have been middle class since God knows when. And generals prepare for the last war, and parents socialize their children for the jobs and the occupations, the social status, which they themselves or even their parents occupied. So, well, this is an armload of theory. How about the data? What happens when you raise children in black versus white, so-called middle-class homes? And a study has been done by a woman named Elsie Moore, uh, who looked at black and mixed-race children raised by black and white or white middle-class families. The black mixed-race means one white parent, one black parent. The black and the mixed-race parents, uh, the, the black and the mixed-race kids had identical IQs, uh, whether they were raised in black homes or in white homes, which indicates there's no contribution of European versus uh, African genes uh, to IQ. And uh, if, you want to, if you want to bore yourself with all the details of why we know that's true, there's, uh, there are hundreds of studies on race and IQ. One study with one design shows, has data indicating that there might be a genetic difference between black and white. All the other hundreds of studies, uh, to, in my view, uh, are, should be interpreted in terms of there being no uh, genetic contribution uh, to the difference in IQ. Uh, okay, so the kids, so uh, European genes are of no advantage to these adopted kids. Uh, what about the home? Well, the children, whether black or mixed race, who are raised in white homes have IQs about 13 points higher than kids raised in black homes. Again, again whether they're a white or mixed race. So there is a very substantial environmental contribution. Or I should say was, because this study is 30 years old now. Um, I don't doubt that if you repeated it, you'd get much weaker differences. We do know that the black-white differences, well, look, the environment's improved in all kinds of ways for blacks in the U.S. Everyone would admit that. Uh, what's happened to IQ? And the answer is that uh, the, the difference between blacks and whites has shrunk by more than a third of the standard deviation as of 2005, and almost surely the gap is lower now because the academic achievement gap has continued to go down. And I could tell another story which about social class and race and uh, academic achievement um, that uh, would show that uh, you can, you can make a huge difference in that gap with trivial-sounding social psychological interventions. I mean, there's wonderful stuff that's going on now that shows that. So, okay, nothing interesting, really, uh, about black-white differences in IQ. It's just another culture difference study, and it's culture difference that's shrinking and, a, uh, and an IQ difference uh, which is shrinking. How about Asian-white differences? Well, Asian in the U.S. means East Asian, mostly, uh, unlike Britain, where I, I imagine it mostly means South Asian. I don't know a thing about South Asians uh, in the way of uh, intellectual skills. Uh, but we do know something, something uh, not a lot, but something 
about uh, Asian, East Asians versus uh, Westerners. Uh, Harold Stevenson and uh, Harold Stigler uh, did a very interesting study where they looked at kids' IQs in the first grade and the fifth grade in Minneapolis and in Sendai, Japan, and in Taipei, uh, Japan, U.S., and, uh, and uh, Taiwan, China. Uh, and they found for the first graders slightly higher IQ for the American kids than for the East Asian kids. And I'm a study, I study uh, uh, Asian versus uh, Western differences uh, in uh, socialization as well as in reasoning forms. Uh, and if you know what goes on, it's characteristic of the middle class uh, Western home. There's a great deal of education. Uh, that goes on, teaching kids how to categorize things, how to use logic, how to evaluate things, very explicit educational stuff in the middle class Western home that does not much go on at all in East Asian homes, which is much more centered on socioeconomic, uh, socio-emotional uh, factors uh, than it is on uh, intellectual ones. Whatever the reason for this, however, the IQ difference is gone by fifth grade. However, the Chinese kids are uh, 1.3 standard deviations advanced over the American kids in math, and for the Japanese kids, it's 1.5 standard deviations. Absolutely massive skill difference that's been produced in five years. Uh, there's lots to be said about what might uh, be producing that difference, but obviously, the schools, or probably something else about the larger culture as well, uh, is, uh, is, first of all, it's very quickly making up for the IQ gap, uh, and it's sending the kids way uh, ahead, uh, the East Asian kids, way ahead of the Western kids. Well, American, I don't want to generalize too much. Uh, there's another extremely interesting study done uh, in... Uh, started in 1966, mammoth study of high school seniors. There were, the inn was so large that you could look at uh, uh, East Asian kids as a separate group and see what the IQs were uh, as compared with the, uh, with the Western kids. There was virtually no difference, trivially higher for the Americans, likely accounted for if they're uh, it's, it's so trivial, it's not worth trying to account for. But if you wanted to account for it, there's a language difference that would favor uh, the white kids over the, uh, over the East Asian kids. However, the SAT scores, the college examination scores, were a third of a standard deviation higher for the Asians than for, uh, than for the uh, European kids. Uh, and SAT scores, college preparation scores, depend more on how hard you want to work than IQ tests do. That would be my explanation for the difference. But the astonishing result came 20 years later to look at the professional achievements of these kids. The East Asian, the Chinese American kids were 62% more likely to be in professional, managerial, or technical jobs than the white kids. I mean, an absolutely massive ability to generate social capital uh, on what is almost surely uh, uh, very little, if any, difference at all in the basic biological plant 
the brain. Uh, well, why does this happen? Well, um, in the fifth grade, uh, I started having trouble with math. Uh, and my parents said, well, don't worry, Nisbets have never been much good in math. Uh, I, was, I was delighted to have the alibi. Um, and contrast that, if, if people know about the book called Tiger Mother, Confessions of a Tiger Mother. You're, yes? Okay. All right. So at any rate, it's a, a Chinese-American mother who shows how it is she gets this high achievement out of these kids. Um, and I, I think you, we can be sure that the tiger mother, if the kid said, you know, I'm, I'm doing really badly and the fractions are really bad, would not say, well, Fong's have never been much good in math. <laughs> uh, that would not be the likely thing that would be said. Instead, you say, even if it were true that the Fong's had never been very good, and the Fong's have not been very good in math, but you are going to be good in math. <laughs> Um, so, there's a lovely little fact about math scores internationally. Uh, there's uh, one given to all the rich countries, the OECD uh, countries. I don't know what grade, maybe the sixth grade. Um, and for at the uh, administration of that test, they also gave a questionnaire, a long and boring, tedious questionnaire, numerous questions. And the dependent variable was how many of these damn things did the kid answer? And uh, it turned out that the correlation uh, between how many questions were answered by the average kid in a particular nation was almost perfectly correlated with the math scores in that nation. Uh, we have a, a developmental psychologist in the U.S. who calls this grit. I mean, just grin and bear it and do the damn thing in uh, some cultures. Uh, do a different job on that uh, than others. Um, so, but, having said that, I think there's nothing interesting going on about IQ, at least between East Asians and Americans, or between East Asian Americans and European Americans. Certainly interesting stuff going on in terms of accomplishment, but in terms of uh, of, of IQ, uh, probably little, uh, if at all. But, I, as some of you know, I've spent years and years studying Asian, by which I always mean East Asian, uh, and Western differences uh, in cognition. And uh, about 15 years ago, a brilliant student from China, after he'd been working with me for a while, said, you know, Dick, uh, you and I think completely differently. I said, oh, tell me more. Uh, and he begins to tell me a story that's essentially this. That is, you think analytically, by which I mean you look at some object or some person, look at the attributes, you use those attributes to assign the thing or the person to some category, you use rules which you assume apply to that object or person, to predict the behavior of that thing. Because you Americans feel in control of things, and one consequence of that is you're constantly modeling the world. How can I get what I want out of this object or out of this person? Things are very different in China, where social relations are more important in general. Harmony is more important. Getting along with people uh, is more important. And uh, because there's more attention to social context, 
There's more attention to context, period, just in general. If you're paying attention to what other people are feeling, effective action in the East depends on ability to get along with other people, ability to coordinate your action with other people. A consequence of this for the way people think is that there's much more emphasis on context. There's a, a, a great deal of trying to examine relationships uh, uh, between elements in the context uh, and to look at similarities and differences uh, between elements in the context. Uh, and this shows up in all kinds of ways. Uh, the, um, the ancient Chinese, th these differences, by the way, go back at least 2,500 years, probably uh, longer than that. Um, uh, the ancient Chinese, well, let's take Aristotle's physics. Uh, Aristotle uh, believed that objects fall uh, when placed in water uh, because they have the property of gravity. Uh, but there's this problem that if you put a piece of wood in water, it floats. Uh, well, that's because the piece of wood has the property of levity. Uh, of course, there's no such property as levity, and gravity is not a property of objects. It's a property of relationships uh, between objects. This was well understood by the ancient Chinese, who understood, uh, had a substantial knowledge of magnetism uh, and of auditory effects, and they understood uh, the uh, reason for the tides, uh, which escaped even Galileo. Uh, but they weren't scientists, because science, when you think about it, is categories plus the rules that apply to those categories logically thought about. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was the Greeks uh, who invented science uh, and who proved many of the things that were intuitively obvious uh, to Chinese uh, to be the case. Uh, it's not just cognition uh, per se that's affected by these social differences. It's also perception. And <clears throat> my favorite study is one that we did <clears throat> that uh, Takahiko, by the way, I didn't mention this brilliant student, it's Kaiping Peng, uh, who's now at uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing. Uh, uh, Takahiko Masuda and I showed 20-second uh, film strips of underwater scenes to Japanese and Americans, and then we asked them, what did you see? And the Americans said, well, I saw three big fish swimming off to the left. They had white bellies and pink stipples on their bellies. Uh, the Japanese almost over overwhelmingly started with context. They say, well, I saw what looked like a stream. The water was green. There were rocks and shells and plants on the bottom. There were three big fish swimming off to the left. The uh, Japanese were able to report 60% more information about the context when we asked them what they had seen than the Americans were, at no cost to what they were able to report about the most salient objects. The Americans, looking at that salient object, the Japanese didn't see the object. The Japanese saw the object in context. So when we, at the end of the study, we showed people uh, uh, the objects, some objects they'd seen before, some they had not seen, uh, and uh, they, uh, um, 
if the object was shown in a different context, this threw the Japanese off. They hadn't seen that object because they saw that object in a context, changed the context, and they can't recognize that they've seen the object because the percept is object in context. But this is broad in historical context. Japanese historians take a much broader historical view uh, in teaching about history, uh, for example, than Westerners do. So it's context, context for everything about perception uh, as well as cognition. Uh, Holistic thought also includes what Kaiping calls uh, dialectical reasoning, which means a million things. He contrasts it with logic. Westerners find logic easier to follow when some set of propositions lead to some conclusion that they don't like. Westerners say, well, that's probably correct anyway. Uh, East Asians are more readily thrown off uh, by how they feel about the conclusion of a logical argument. Uh, But uh, instead of logic, what uh, East Asians have uh, is is, uh, dialectical reasoning, uh, by which Kaiping means a million things. One is, instead of the Western habit of being confronted with two propositions which seem to be in conflict with one another, throwing away one in preference to the other, much more likely to try and split the difference to find what might be true about uh, both of the propositions. Uh, In reasoning about problems, there's a greater tendency to take into account many perspectives uh, on uh, on, uh, things. Uh, different people's uh, perspectives. Uh, There's no tendency toward hyperlogic. There's a concept in Japan of hyperlogicalness, which they consider juvenile, uh, to remove, uh, to strip some situation or problem of its details and and, uh, uh, abstract it up to some level where you can operate it on with pure logic. They know you can do that, and they think it's basically a bad idea. And I think it's, a, frankly, a Western intellectual foible to hyperlogicize, to neologize. Um, so, um, uh, and uh, there tends to be lower certainty uh, for uh, an East Asian reasoning about a particular problem than you would find for a Westerner. Now, a lot of that sounds to me like wisdom. It's wiser uh, to, uh, to assume that there may be truth to two apparently opposing propositions than to just throw one away. Uh, it's wiser to take many perspectives than fewer perspectives. Uh, it's uh, uh, wiser to think that situations are not static, that they're likely to change, which is much more characteristic of the dialectical approach to the world. So we tried to see if we, what we could find differences in wisdom defined in those ways. And we had people look at social conflicts, uh, societal conflicts, and individual personal conflicts, and tell us, and think of it, tell us what, what's going to happen next. And uh, first of all, we actually did the study initially to see whether people get wiser as they get older. You might be surprised to know that there was, prior to this study, not a shred of evidence uh, to indicate (laughs) that older people were wiser, but they are. 
with respect to social conflict. People get wiser. They take more perspectives. They realize change is going to happen. They look for opportunities for, uh, for compromise and so on. Uh, but young Japanese are substantially wiser than young Americans. But they don't get wiser as they get older. So there's no difference between 75-year-old Japanese and Americans with respect to wisdom that we could find. Now, why might that be? Uh, well, it's, again, if you know anything about socialization, about East, East Asian socialization, there are, there are constant, I mean, it's not even a good idea. You don't ask people for the, what do you think of the movie? That's a bad idea because, oh, my God, we might have different views of the movie, and then where would we be? I mean, it's just... The society is all about harmony, how to avoid social conflict, and how to deal with it if it occurs. So, um, uh, at any rate, um, yes, there are wisdom differences, uh, but they're very much a function of age within cultures. Uh, okay, well, in the last five minutes of my talk, uh, I want to talk about another cultural difference which is upon us that is, I think, almost equal in magnitude to the Industrial Revolution, and it's the Information Revolution. We now have to have ways of thinking, to be effective in our society, we have to have ways of thinking about data, uh, not just how to think about things. We need to know how to gather information, how to code it in a sensible way, if possible, give a number to it, how to analyze it, how to take information from tables and graphs and figures, how to uh, critique arguments from data, how to manipulate the environment so as to acquire new information, and how to make decisions uh, based uh, on uh, information and on sensible cost-benefit analyses. Now, the tools for these things uh, have been known for a fair amount of time. Some are relatively recent, but they are of the tools of statistics, probability, scientific methodology, decision theory, and to a degree uh, epistemology, advances in epistemology. Um, and let me, and everybody in this room has heard about these things, standard deviation, correlation, uh, randomized control group, uh, cost-benefit analysis, opportunity cost, sunk cost, etc. You've heard of those concepts, and many of you Use some of them in your profession. You're very familiar with them. But I promise you, none of you use any of these crucial concepts to remotely the degree that you could in everyday life. So let me just take one example, uh, which will finish my talk. Suppose uh, I told you I have a friend uh, who's a company executive. And recently he, he interviewed someone. Uh, for a managerial position. The person came with extremely high recommendations from his previous employers, had a great record. Uh, but my friend found him in the interview. He couldn't make interesting observations about his company. It just doesn't seem all that sharp. So he tells his colleagues, you know, I, d I don't think we should uh, be pursuing this guy. I just don't think he's for us. They say, well, sounds like a totally ordinary event. So what's, what's of interest there? Contrast that with a football coach for a university who goes to a practice uh, uh, session of football uh, and to watch uh, a kid, a forward, uh, who has a great scoring record, has terrific recommendations from his coaches. 
But in the practice, the kid misses a lot of shots he should never have missed. He just didn't seem in control of the ball. So my coach friend goes back and tells his colleagues, I don't think we should pursue this kid. Uh, I just don't think he's got it. Um, and uh, um, I hope, at least for those of you with some knowledge of athletics, that seems like a dubious decision. Uh, why is it a dubious decision? It's a dubious decision because 30 minutes or an hour is not a big enough sample of someone's athletic skill to know uh, exactly how good that person is. The judgment of my friend, my mythical friend, the executive, is even worse than the judgment uh, of uh, the coach because, uh, as it turns out, the correlation between uh, people's the ratings they get in an interview, a 30-minute inter unstructured interview, and performance in any setting, college, university, as a physician, as a, any kind of business that's ever been examined in the military, correlation is 0.1. That's the ceiling for the unstructured interview. That means if you're choosing between two people, uh, and you could do it by a coin flip, okay, let's get Bob, or you could interview and use that as your basis, which would get your accuracy, the hiring the better one, up to 53%. Uh, that's about the magnitude. Now, why do we blow it so badly with the interview? Why am I telling you something that seems, oh, God, I didn't know that. Uh, why didn't you know that? Because you haven't seen lots and lots of people go through interviews and then looked at their performance later in your company or school and also looked at the people that you didn't hire, didn't admit, in their context and see how well uh, the what the correlation looks like. Uh, and what's missing is uh, a recognition of the law of large numbers in the abstract, which is that sample values resemble population values as a direct function of their size and an inverse function of the expected error associated with each observation. We have a good estimate of that error in the case of any athletic event that we have some knowledge about. None of us have much at all, recognition of any degree of error. The only way you're going to know that you have to apply that, the law of large numbers, is to have the following rule. In addition to knowing this rule in the abstract, to know that almost all human behavior has error associated with the observation. So that um, the uh, one thing I one way I encourage you to think about the world is that everything you find out about a person or a thing should be regarded as an observation, which, by definition, in uh, uh, in metric theory, measurement theory, is true score plus error. True score being the score is God sees it, how, how good a manager this guy really is, how good a, uh, a forward this kid uh, really is, plus error. And remind yourself that if it's human behavior, especially if it's human behavior in a novel situation, there's going to be lots of error. Well, uh, if I don't know how we're going to want to go uh, about uh, discussion, I want to hear what the discussants have to say. I want to hear what you have to say. I'm prepared to talk about... Uh, but first of all, my bottom line here is we have this, we did fantastically. 
with the Industrial Revolution, of getting people the cultural skills which they needed very quickly to a very substantial extent. They're still going up, by the way, in all countries in the world except Scandinavia, where I think they've stopped going because Scandinavians do a better job than anybody else of bringing the bottom up uh, through their um, social welfare policies. Uh, but we're doing an absolutely terrible job. We've got the tools here for the information uh, re revolution, uh, but our culture has not risen to the occasion showing people how to use these tools in everyday life. Thank you. Dick, thank you so much for a fascinating lecture. Um, I'm not sure whether the LSE is an ideal location for you to give a talk after all because our motto is to know the causes of things. And it sounds like we're just logic chopping. We're not getting towards wisdom at all. Is that right? Just logic chopping and... We're not getting towards wisdom at all. Well, as a culture? At the LSE, certainly. Well, I, actually, I think the culture is getting wiser. I'm, I'm, uh, I love the book by... Uh, uh, Steve Pinker, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, and if you're a social psychologist, if you're a cultural psychologist, not could be anybody at all, it's a wonderful book. It's a, it, the uh, uh, homicide rate in Oxford uh, 300 years ago was 100 times what the homicide rate is today. Basically, any statistic you want to look at, we're just not as violent uh, as we used to be. Uh, and he attributes that in part to uh, the printing press that we started reading out and saying, well, let's see, a bad idea to kill other people. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> a very wise response. Thank you. Um, okay, our discussion is now going to be in two parts. The first part will be our two discussants who will offer some comments on, on the talk. And after that, we'll open the discussion out to the audience for questions from the floor. So our first discussant is Dr. Hyung Jun Lee, who is from the Department of Management. And she specializes in the study of uh, biculturalism, cosmopolitan identity, and human relations. Hi, uh, I'm Hyun Jung Lee from uh, Management Department. Um, first of all, thank you very much for your uh, intriguing, fascinating presentation, Richard. Um, it is most in intriguing to hear that uh, cross-cultural differences or differential IQ gains across different cultural groups are, um, and more importantly, your core argument is that it's not genetic causes. It's about environment you live in that contribute uh, uh, certain groups' cultural, uh, certain groups' IQ or intelligence gains higher than others. So differentiation. So um, coming from a management field and as a cross-cultural management specialist, my comments and questions is, uh, is more of an application of your thoughts. I'm sure that Michael will dig into the causes and evolutionary perspective. Uh, my curiosity and my question is for you is that uh, what your views are on the application of your findings and your work in the context of the globalization, uh, basically. Um, I have, a, uh, broadly speaking, two questions. They are related. And here is my first. Um, we all know that the one of the uh, defining characteristics of the 21st century, if you, if you may, 
is the um, interconnectedness of economic, political, and cultural interconnectedness. Um, and the global mobility is one of the epitomized uh, elements of this century. And the people, um, for example, in 1980s, we, say, we see that global mobility is for some elite, elite class, or some very uh, distinctive professionals. But these days, what we see is that the social base of global mobility is brought it is rapidly expanding, meaning uh, not so elite and some ordinary people uh, achieve global mobility, meaning it is cultural contact. So uh, there are um, intense and wide cultural contact is uh, what we live in in, in, in this century. So in the light of this, I'm curious to know um, your views on the implications of intense cross-cultural contact on intelligence gains in different cultural groups. Um, there seems an unwritten assumptions in your data and a lot of other studies that um, each and every cultural group leads a life more or less segregated from other. So East Asia is fascinating um, uh, uh, presentations, so Western and Eastern comparison is one of the uh, uh, better known work of yours, and I use the examples all the time in the class. Um, but nowadays, uh, it, these two cultures, uh, multiple different cultures are in intense contact. The, the cultures meet, and what's the consequences of a differential intelligence gains across different groups? So they're not segregated. So, several different cultural groups in the study, they are in contact more intensely than ever. So I'd like to uh, have a view on this. Um, related to this, um, uh, putting this in a real timely contemporary phenomenon in Europe right now, uh, what we are seeing is massive migration issues in here we, we face in Europe. Um, this would inevitably lead to more cross-cultural contact, more intense contact between different cultures. Uh, different cultural frames ultimately and the societies will become, I suspect, even more multicultural at the collective level. Uh, to rephrase my first question on a more a broad level, would this intense cross-cultural contact between different cultural groups, uh, in your view, affect general IQ improvement? Uh, of humans overall? That's my first question. And uh, my next question is very much related to the first, uh, but at this time, my question is for more of individual level, intra-individual level. Um, these days, um, one of your uh, East Asian versus Western uh, comparisons, uh, mostly in the American context, I wonder whether East Asians, you, uh, uh, a lot of psychologists collected the data from are actually bicultural, meaning um, they're not just the Chinese, they're not just the Japanese, but they're bicultural. Meaning bicultural, um, people who are intensely, deeply socialized with more than one culture. So these people, although they're Americans, they live in two different worlds. So biculturals, they are at home, they have to be Japanese. Uh, in society, they have to be American. 
um, there is an accumulating um, evidence in, in my field that uh, biculturals have certain cognitive advantages over monocultural individuals in terms of predominantly cognitive complexity. So I wonder whether biculturals, meaning uh, having, having to live with two different cultures, sometimes some people, this means switching between the two. You have two different cultural frames in your head, and when you're home, you have to be Indian. Right? You have to follow the Indian tradition and respect for your parents and all these uh, cultural frames. You activate that Indian frames. When you're outside, you have to be British. Right? So uh, these people have much more complexities in cognition. Uh, therefore, my question is that um, what are your views of your data and your findings in terms of biculturalism or if there is more than two, it's multiculturalism. Bicultural multiculturalism, what's the implications of these bicultural individuals' um, uh, cognitive gains or intelligence gains? Uh, it, this bicultural proportion is not negligible. Uh, what I have seen, one of the OECD statistics uh, say that more than 20% of under t uh, 15 years old in Europe can be categorized as bicultural. So, and this proportion is increasing. And where, Europe in general or Britain? In Europe, in Europe in general. It's a, one of the OECD statistics. So this is not um, a minority, and it is increasing in an upward. So um, observing this phenomenon of bicultural, um, if you have two different cultural frames incorporated in one individual, and what is your view of having these uh, uh, multiple cultures uh, on overall intelligence gains. What gains? Over time, intelligence gains or cognitive, gains? yes, yeah. or over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, great questions. Um, yes, a lot of our subjects are bicultural when we look at uh, Asian Americans. Uh, people sometimes ask me, well, what do Asian Americans look like as opposed to Asians? Versus, uh, and the answer is that uh, some of the time we find that our Asian Americans are much more like Asians with some God, respect to some Chinese <coughs> names than they are with, uh, to European Americans. Sometimes we find they're identical to the European Americans, and more typically we find them they're somewhere in between. So, I mean, I have no generalizations about what kinds of things that you're going to find uh, uh, people being. Uh, typically bicultural about. Uh, I, the main thing I want to respond to here, and, and it has to do everything with, with my talk, theme of talk, culture and intelligence. I mean, the West has given things to East Asia, which are true. They, they do very well, thank you, with science. The Western tricks are not hard to learn. <laughs> uh, logic and I mean, statistics, categorization, these things are, are easy to learn. East Asians are doing it very easily. I think the, the advantages, the cognitive advantages of Easterners are much more difficult to transfer to Westerners because they're not purely cognitive. They're, they're, they're bound up with, with, with socio-emotional things. They're bound up with, uh, with their understanding of other people. It's, uh, so uh, I think... Uh, I mean, I use myself as an example. I don't really know anybody else who's spent the last 15 years 
learning from East Asians <laughs> like I have. I've had unbelievable uh, East Asian students for the last 15 years. And I do think I have become somewhat more Asian. I do think I have uh, developed some things. I think I am less likely to assume that uh, uh, if there's a contradiction, I've got to hammer one of them into the ground and elevate the other. Uh, I think I'm more likely to see uh, merit uh, in uh, each of two opposing arguments. Uh, I think I'm more aware of change, uh, the likelihood of change in a given situation. Uh, I I, I'm certainly more attentive to context. I mean, now, some of that may just be getting older. I mean, uh, you pay more attention. It, it pays to pay attention to context. So you learn that. And by the way, I didn't explain why it is that, that Americans are getting wiser with age, whereas Japanese aren't. I mean, they're getting wiser because they're making mistakes with social. They're getting into social conflicts. They're handling them badly, and they learn from those. So they are inducing the rules that Japanese get for free. Uh, so I think there are huge intellectual skill advantages of East and West. Uh, the East now for, in the case of Japan, 150 years, in the case of China, more like 100 years, uh, uh, have been uh, adopting the intellectual tools uh, of Westerners. Uh, which are not hard to learn. I think there's hardly been a dent that's been made, and I'm not sure how much of a dent there can ever be made uh, in uh, teaching uh, uh, Asian ways of thinking, the advantages of that. I just, uh, I've, I haven't thought about, honestly, how to teach it, but I hope someone will and see if um, some of these tools can't be picked up more easily than I'm afraid is the case now. So. Um, I think we should move on now to our second commentator, who's Dr. Michael Bhutakrishna, who's from the Department of Psychology at the LSE. Mike's um, specialization is in cultural evolution, cooperation, innovation, biological evolution too. And over to you, Mike. Thanks. Uh, so, Dick, I just wanted to echo Dr. Lee's thank you for a fascinating and thought-provoking talk. Um, so I'm in a bit of a strange position, as you know, so Joe Henrik and I have converged on very similar uh, conclusions about intelligence and IQ, uh, drawing on some of your work, but also coming from a different perspective, uh, dual inheritance theory, uh, that is the idea that human uniqueness is characterized by a second line of inheritance. So, uh, in, you know, um, in addition to your genetic inheritance from mom and dad, also your cultural intel inheritance from society. Uh, so in that sense, not only is a culture-free IQ test impossible, but so too is the, the very concept of culture-free IQ. So uh, as you can imagine, I have lots of questions for you, but uh, I'm going to limit it to three. So the first question uh, is that I'd just like to, to speak to the controversy uh, about how intelligence research is conducted, uh, especially about possible group differences. So as you know, as everyone knows, there's a, a deep and troubling history to this kind of work that's still present today uh, in, in books, for example, by people like Nick Wade, uh, who's of course a journalist. Um, but you know, there's a danger, I guess, in not looking at these questions because it really allows people to, to cling to their folk perspectives and, and prejudices uh, governed by the kind of biases that you describe in your, in your new book, Mindware. So I, I'm definitely for studying these questions and, and scrutinizing them under the sanitizing light of good science. Uh, but I was wondering how you personally deal with uh, that history and the con controversial nature of this work as a scientist. Um, my second question 
is that schooling uh, is becoming more complex. Uh, jobs, both white and blue collar, are becoming more complex, requiring more schooling, more education. Um, and no doubt, in line with what you've presented today, some of that uh, you know, is responsible for, for the IQ, uh, the, IQ uh, the rise in IQ score that we see. Um, and, you know, many of these people here today are graduate students who have spent two decades in school, uh, but there is a limit to this, to this ongoing delayed education. Uh, it delays earning, it delays uh, parenting, uh, and so on. So how do you see us as a society dealing with this uh, as schooling becomes longer and longer? Do we, do we pack in more earlier, uh, or do things slow down as we all become Scandinavia? Um, my third question is that, you know, uh, if, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the U.S. political scene, uh, particularly with what's going on with the Republican Party, uh, <laughs> it, can be, it can be difficult sometimes to believe that graph that you put up, that IQ scores really are rising. <laughs> and that we as a society are becoming more intelligent. Uh, intelligent. So... You know, uh, so <laughs> so if you if you look at the media, it's true that you know there are shows like The Wire and, and Breaking Bad, uh, definitely more complex and more complicated than, than shows like I Love Lucy. But there's also Teen Mom and My Sweet Sixteen, right? Keeping up with the Kardashians. Um, so do you think what we're seeing here is kind of an illusion, or do you think there's some kind of divergence that's going on uh, in the U.S. and maybe elsewhere with some groups, uh, particularly uh, lower socioeconomic whites, perhaps being left behind in this average rise? Oh, wonderful questions again. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I, I know perfectly well what the title of my talk is doing to people. It makes you rather nervous. Oh, my God, what's he going to tell us? Uh, everything I've found out that falls under the rubric of culture and intelligence, I consider to be highly optimistic. Um, I, I see no... Uh, genetic differences uh, of any kind. doesn't mean there aren't. I mean, somebody may find that, that Eastern Europeans um, have poorer genes for IQ than Eastern Africans. Could happen. Uh, so far, nothing like that. There are no genetic differences. I see only environmental and cultural differences. So, um, it's, uh, but I should say that the, the history of black-white uh, IQ differences is shameful. Uh, when I initially read, ages and ages ago, Jensen's article, How Much Can We Boost uh, Scholastic Achievement in IQ, I said, oh my God, there goes the ball game. I guess there's a genetic difference uh, between blacks and whites. And for some reason, I don't know why, I cycled back to that much later and started looking at it. And the closer I looked at it, the more this, the evidence dissolved. Uh, and uh, so in my book, Intelligence and How to Get It, I have an entire chapter on, uh, on race differences in IQ, black-white differences in particular, and I go through all of the alleged evidence. As I say, to my view, uh, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And I think this is surprising to most people. I mean, how much evidence is there? People are scared to think about it. Don't be scared. It's, <laughs> the news is all great. Uh, the differences not, are not genetic. Uh, they're being reduced. Uh, by normal education. We could reduce them much faster. I don't I have time to go into that, uh, the academic achievement differences. Uh, Nicholas Wade's book, I think, absolutely unforgivable uh, because he speculates in there about intellectual differences based on culture. 
uh, that uh, are which which uh, trickle down to the genes, so that there could well be differences. It, it's total speculation. I mean, completely irresponsible. I mean, of course you can say, well, yeah, well, there could be differences like that. Absolutely. What else is there to be said? But the whole tenor is, oh my God, this is a scary stuff. But there sure could be genetic differences there that we would care about. And there's there nothing's been discovered. Uh, Except one thing, which I can't resist pointing out. I do think there is a genetic difference between one uh, ethnic group and another, uh, a disadvantage of one group, and that is I believe that Ashkenazi Jewish males have a specific space form disability. <laughs> Ashkenazi Jews with IQs of 130 get IQs of more like 90 and 95 on spatial relations tasks. I've, I, that's interesting to me to speculate about that. Might conceivably be some actual uh, disability there. Uh, nothing else, and I've looked at everything that has any claim. Uh, the longer and longer education idea. I had a job as an assistant professor at the age of 24. <laughs> I mean, most people, you know, they, that's, they can't imagine such a thing. And damn it. I was ready for it, and so would you <laughs> be. Uh, but you're you know, trudging through because you can learn that stuff on the job. Anything that you're interested in, it, 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 the extension of education—it's just crazy to me. It's just very unfortunate because uh, the formal education uh, can stop much earlier than it does uh, for people who can go into some kind of profession where they can uh, learn as they go. Uh, Somebody made the interesting comment uh, a while back to me that the last person on earth who could claim to know everything worth knowing was Leonardo da Vinci. And that sounds right to me. I mean, the rest of us... Uh, and what we do have... Uh, I mean, my book, Mindware, is all about tools for reasoning that all of us can put into operation. But the truth is, in the end, there's just such a limited amount of expertise that we can have. And as the fields get broader and broader, the, our, the fraction in which we can be expert gets uh, smaller and smaller. Uh, so we end up being at the mercy of experts. And, uh, uh, and so there's skill necessary to evaluate ex who's an expert. Uh, how much can I trust the person? How can I critique the experts? And so on. David Dunning, who's a social psychologist that many of the social psychologists here will know, is writing a book now on expertise. How to identify it, um, how to critique it, uh, when you have to pay attention to it. I mean, we have a ghastly situation now, right, where people, especially in the U.S., I don't know how bad this is in Europe, uh, there's been a collapse of faith in institutions, which I know to a degree has happened in Europe, uh, in, uh, specifically in Britain, uh, but probably not to the degree that it has in the U.S. And a, a part of that is the press uh, and scientists. I mean, you, know, you can't believe, no, that's what scientists say. Scientists can be wrong all the time. So I think I'll get my views from uh, a few websites and blogs uh, from, which come to me from God knows where. So there's a, a, a huge premium now in being able to assess uh, expertise and knowing when it is you've got to give up and say, okay, I guess I have to go with what the experts are saying. Uh, then your final question is the question that interests me most right now. 
I don't know how many of you were, the bottom has fallen out of life for the bottom <coughs> approximately third of U.S. whites. They are the only group in the U.S. for whom mortality rates are increasing. Uh, they are the only group in any of the rich nations. Uh, no other nation has any group that anyone's identified which is collapsing like that. Now, nobody knows why that's... So to give you an idea, there's a book by that awful man, Murray, uh, Charles Murray, but it's a tremendously important book. It's called Coming Apart. And he looks at uh, the top 20%, the, the SES stratum, 50 years ago, and the bottom 30%. looks at social capital. Things like teenage pregnancies, single parents, um, able-bodied males out of the workforce, it's all looking at whites, whites top, of the bo top and bottom of the white SES spectrum. The, uh, 50 years ago, there was virtually no difference in social capital uh, between the top 20% and the bottom 30%. No difference in teenage age, no in single-parent families. Uh, virtually all of the able-bodied males in the bottom 30% were employed gainfully, um, there was, et, et cetera. The top 20% look exactly like they did uh, 50 years ago, but the bottom has fallen out for the bottom. I mean, it's, uh, the, I mean, the, 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 there's astonishing statistics like the uh, increase uh, by a factor of 10 or 12 in the rate of teenage pregnancies uh, uh, enormous increases in the rate of suicide. Most of the mortality for U.S. whites now at the bottom uh, is pr pretty clearly traceable to uh, uh, self-destructive habits, drugs and alcohol and so on. I don't know why it's happening, but it's the cultural thing I worry most about. I was terribly worried about it even before, and now I have to make a political statement, right, to make sense of what I'm going to say. I was tremendously worried about it before I found it. it's these people who are supporting Donald Trump. That's where the, 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 the support comes from. Uh, I was also interested to read, uh, and you won't be surprised why I was looking up the history about, of this, about Nazism. Uh, Hitler was considered to be a buffoon <laughs> before he wasn't considered to be a buffoon. Uh, and the other thing is that the initial support for Nazism came from rural Protestants, peasants, rural Protestants, peasants. That's where the, and that, of course, is where uh, the, the biggest support is for, uh, for Donald Trump. It's for, um, so, uh, so I'm very w worried about it. Uh, these are not exactly intellectual matters, uh, but um, they're surely tied up with them. I mean, people at the bottom are not... It's, I think, much less the case now that they're able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps in terms of, and to, to achieve whatever uh, they were meant to be able to achieve in terms of their uh, genetic endowment. Um, so uh, I would love, if people have thoughts about this, I'd love to talk to you later about any theories you might have about what's going on there. Thanks very much, Dick. That's fascinating. We've moved now from individual psychology all the way up to major movements in politics. I don't know how we follow this, but the audience is going to follow it now with their questions. Um, can you please raise your hand, and um, the roving microphone will find its way towards you. Um, and can you also identify yourself, your name, your affiliation, please? 
thank you very much. I'm Heide Rida from Bain & Company. Um, I'm very glad you showed that genes don't matter that much because I'm from a bicultural family myself and now I can stop the discussion between my father and my mother where I got the smart side from and the, the stupid side. Um, but it, although I like it a lot, I would like to get some clarification because if you look at other characteristics like height, uh, height of people, uh, ability for sports, etc., there is clear differences across different races. So why do you think that on all of these other aspects there is differences and on this one there isn't? And then because I'm bicultural, I also have a second question <laughs> looking at... Let me make sure I have your first question. Yes. So if, if you look at ability for sports or ability for uh, or, uh, or physical characteristics, there's always clear differences between different races. So why do you think that for the brain that's not the case? Why do you think that for the brain the genes don't cause these dif differences across races? Or do I think there are genetic differences behind these athletic skill differences? Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming there, there are. Like if you look at the, the performance of different races on, on the 100 meter tracks or on football or on any of those, there's clear differences. Uh, so assuming that that's because of genes, why isn't that the same for the brain? And then secondly, to the point about how can we now, going forward, uh, increase this even further, what do you think are the step changes uh, that, that are possible to achieve? So one is uh, one change is schooling and doing further what we've been doing for hundreds of years now. But is there anything given this improved IQ, which we could do really differently now to, to benefit more from that increased IQ and to push it even further up? I'm sorry, repeat that last. What is the, the question? So the, so the, the results of, or the increase in IQ which, which you've shown is a result of better schooling, uh, etc. things which we've been doing for hundreds of years and it's been a gradual increase the question is, is there anything which is more a step change increase where we could really bring it to a different level by doing new things instead of doing things which we've already been doing for hundreds of years better? Right. Okay. Thank you. Very nice questions. I don't doubt for a minute that there is very substantial genetic uh, uh, contribution to differences in athletic <coughs> skill. If for no other reason then that I am at about the third percentile of athletic skill. And it's not for want of trying. <laughs> I've actually tried to teach people the game of squash, and they've beaten me on the game in which I'm teaching them. So uh, <laughs> to me, it's completely compelling that there's a genetic contribution to uh, not just specific athletic skills, but to general athletic skills. Uh, so is there kind of... So that we've on the, we're on this, the way I understand your question, we're on this... Uh, gradual trajectory of improving with respect to a large set of skills, I think we're on an even more gradual, less steep uh, approach to the kinds of skills that are necessary for the information age. Uh, and could there be a step function there? And absolutely there could be. If I had had five more minutes in my talk, I would have said, um, I know what happens to people with respect to the ability to reason about uh, problems in everyday life with respect to statistics, probability, uh, scientific methodology, uh, cost-benefit decision, and so on. Uh, I've looked at what happens to uh, students in psychology, the other social sciences, uh, the physical sciences, and uh, literary fields over a two-year period. When they come into the University of Michigan as freshmen at the end two years later, Psychology students gain 70% more 
more ability to answer questions, like the, the questions that depend on understanding the law of large numbers or the regression principle and so on. It's really big. Other social sciences gain uh, about 30 to 40 percent. Uh, physical sciences and literary studies gain nothing at all. They are learning nothing about the kinds of skills that my book is about. Now, could you, uh, could these things be taught? First of all, the, the people who are teaching these tools, the students who are actually getting a gain, are not producing anything like the gain that they could get. My joke about statistics is that it's taught to prevent, if it's all possible, its, uh, its extension to everyday life. Uh, and uh, very few everyday life examples are given. Uh, and if you ask teachers why they're not doing that, they say, well, look, you know, it's hard enough to teach this stuff anyway. There's a body of literature there. They've got to know that. I don't have time to hold their hand and tell stories about, you know, that'll... Now, I think that's a, a big mistake. First of all, they overestimate how much time is necessary. The reason I wrote the book is that a long time ago, I'd been studying errors in reasoning, and I, I sort of had the evolutionary argument that, well, you know, we, we have these ways of reasoning, and they're, they're probably 150,000 years old. There's nothing you can do to change them. So I'll prove that. I'll try to teach it in the laboratory. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, if you teach something like the law of large numbers, we do it in purely abstract forms. So what's a sample? What's a population? What's a parameter? What's randomness? And so on. Never talking about any kind of real problem, certainly not everyday life problems people can now solve, go off and solve everyday life problems using uh, that knowledge. If we give them just problems uh, uh, of, an, of a concrete nature and never talk in the abstract, they gain a lot. And the two piggyback. Together, they're, they're, they're uh, each is uh, highly effective, and both together is very important. Uh, and that's true with everything we looked at. Uh, I was shocked to discover that for University of Michigan seniors, their ability to use cost-benefit rules to think about ordinary societal problems and personal uh, kinds of questions is unrelated to the number of economics courses they've had taken. Uh, and uh, most of you know who Paul Krugman is. He's a New York Times uh, uh, columnist, economist, uh, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, He's written the text that's used at the University of Michigan. He gives exactly one example from everyday life of sunk cost traps. Uh, and it's not even a very good example. But you don't have to give very many examples. Therefore, people, they, they get it. I mean, it, I, it only takes me 10 minutes to change people's lives, honest to God, with the sunk cost. And I get letters, you know. <laughs> I get letters. Uh, <laughs> stacks of letters. <laughs> People thanking me for the sunk cost concept because it really does change the way you think. So, and these instructional things last, and they last completely outside the context where they're taught because we call people up in the guise of opinion polls and we ask them about public policy questions or personal questions uh, and we see whether they've made use of the rules that we've taught them, and they do. Uh, weeks later, totally different context. It's astonishingly easy to teach this stuff. I couldn't have been more wrong. The evolutionary tack on this is the absolute wrong one to take, fortunately. 
Okay, we have time for one or two more questions, but please could I ask you to make them rather sharp and focused. Um, gentleman at the back, please. Thank you very much. Um, when you say that how to gain, how to, what you call, uh, get intelligence, I have a little problem with it. Let me explore this uh, uh, in, in this way. The average person living 100 years back perhaps was not able to read. Average person now can read. Are you saying this, that every person now has evolved in his intelligence? Yes, sir. Has his intelligence evolved? What are you saying? Are you saying that, are you simply saying that his cognition level has, has evolved? So please try, try to explain to me, um, when you say how to get intelligence, do you mean how to be more knowledgeable? How to be more, uh, how to be more uh, advanced in, in your uh, cognition levels? Thank you. Yeah, I need, I need uh, either repetition of that or someone who's close to it. I'm, I'm hard of hearing and I just didn't get all of that. I'll try, to, I'll try to paraphrase it. Uh, I think the question was, uh, is the average person today who can now read and is literate, uh, are you saying that they are more intelligent than the average person, say, 100 or 200 years ago? Oh, absolutely, without question. I mean, uh, they can solve problems that were completely impossible, problems in everyday life, problems, in, and, and the things they're taught in school really, I mean, it turns out to a surprising extent, is producing all kinds of intellectual skills, and it shows up in IQ tests, it shows up in all kinds of other things. I've lived long enough, by the way, to have an I, th this, I'm about to give you evidence you should ignore, but uh, I've lived long enough to have an idea about whether people have gotten smarter, and believe me, I mean, I find cab drivers and baggage handlers and, uh, and cleaning ladies to be people I can learn from and have <laughs> highly interesting discussions. Wasn't true to anything like the same extent 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, so uh, it completely fits with my experiences that uh, people at every stratum are, are smarter. It, it used to be at the turn of the 20th century it was understood at universities that you couldn't teach calculus to students until they were seniors. Now it's routinely taught in high school. Uh, if you look at what the curriculum is for pre-kindergarten stuff, I mean, kids are being taught things about abstraction and logical analysis that uh, were completely beyond the, the people at the, not quite the top of society. I'm sure I don't know anybody as smart as Aristotle. So there, there hasn't been that much change at the very, very top, but just below the very top and all the way down, uh, there's been huge gain. I think on that very optimistic note, um, we will have to draw proceedings to a close. Um, we're being told we must move out rather quickly. Um, before we do end, can I point out that there's a book sale in the foyer, and Professor Nisbet will be available to sign copies of the book on the stage afterwards. Um, also, to inform you that the next lecture in this series will take place on the... 25th of April, where Professor Hazel Marcus of Stanford University will talk about a very related topic, which is on, entitled Clash, How to Thrive in the Multicultural World. Uh, we hope to see you there. So thank you all very much for your time this evening.